Well, hello, everyone. So good to see you. Hey, just want to say thank you so much for joining this online service. Man, our heart here at ABF is that everybody is connected to a local church of believers. And so this video is intended to be just a supplement, whether it's an extra teaching in your week or if you're out of town, that's our heart for this teaching. So thank you so much for joining us here today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Wanted to let you know about a few things going on. First of all, if you wouldn't mind texting us at 97,000, that's 97 with three zeros, uh, text us any prayer request. We would love to pray for you this week, wherever you are, we'd love to pray for you. That would be great. That's the first thing. Also, if you're interested in some of the other things that are going on here around the church, the best way is to go on our website at agorabible.org. You can see what ministries are going on, the different events that we have uh, going here in the next few weeks, uh, different ways to connect in groups, ways to serve, etc. It's all there on the website. Finally, thank you so much for your continued generosity. They're the only reason why we stay afloat and can do all the things that we do is because of your support. So you can also give online through the website as well. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's teaching. Well, greetings online church family. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I just uh, to kind of turn a corner, if you will, as a church, as we are moving more as we're just a couple weeks out from Christmas, more towards a focus and emphasis on that. And we had a wonderful time at Christmas Cafe, spending time celebrating uh, Jesus Christ and his birth. And so this week, thought we'd spend a little bit more time in that conversation, just looking at a message called His Arrival. But before, before we dive into that, it got me thinking back to uh, my upbringing and grew up with uh, my dad. And I always thought it was strange. Uh, my dad, when he would hear songs from his era, anytime we were driving in the car, if a Beach Boys song came on or an Elvis song, he'd always blast that. And I was just like, man, how do you get stuck in one particular era and really never move on or never leave it? I kind of joked about it. But then the funny thing is, I've noticed now when I'm driving with my kids, Anytime a song from the 90s comes on, that was something that I grew up with, man, I'm just belting it out, singing along, and I'm like, wait a second, I've become my father. I don't know if you have the same thing that you deal with, a particular era of music, but from the 90s, it just seems like there are so many just kind of fun, mindless songs, but one that kind of stuck out, and there's a reason I bring this up, that stuck with me over the years was this song. Uh, it was written uh, by an artist. I don't know if you uh, can remember her. Her name is Joan Osborne. She wrote this song called One of Us, and it was proposing a question. You might remember the lyrics. What if God was one of us? Like a stranger on a bus. I don't remember where it goes from there, but it's interesting. I, I remember thinking about that. I'm like, oh man, did she, did she miss the news? Like, did she miss out that she didn't realize that it actually happened. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God did become one of us. It's not a, a question. She's singing as if it hadn't happened, as if John 1.14 wasn't true. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
See, that's the good news that we celebrate this Christmas. Is that it's not a what if God were one of us. It's a wow, thank you, God, that you became one of us. Well, last week at Christmas Cafe, I spent some time just talking about what his pursuit looked like and how that pursuit was ultimately demonstrated by the choice to come down to be among us. And here this week, we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about what his arrival actually looked like, what it means for each one of us. Let me just pray before we explore this topic. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather even online just as people that are hungry to know more about you, to know you more deeply. God, we ask that this time would be a valuable time spent, uh, that we grow uh, in both of those things, our understanding of you uh, and uh, appropriate response to you. God, we ask that you'd move, that your Holy Spirit would be teaching us even in these moments. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. So that's the big idea, talking about his arrival here today. What does that look like? How, what does it mean for me? That, that concept that God, the, the same one that created the universe, that, that spoke things into existence, every single thing that you see, every person that you've laid eyes on, all because of his handiwork, that God chose to come be among us, to live as if he were one of us. Really, it's kind of a mind-boggling concept. And so as we try to make sense out of it, you're like, well, what does that even mean? How do you leave the throne room of heaven to be amongst us and coming as a, as a baby? What does that look like? I think one of the best passages that gives clues towards how this all worked is one that's not necessarily attached typically to the Christmas narrative. We're going to jump over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which I think gives us tons of clues as to how this one of us, how this arrival played itself out. Let's start in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians explaining this. This is Paul speaking. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. All right, we'll stop there because I think there's some important information. Basically, what's happening here is Paul's writing the church in Philippi, and he's giving them a charge. He's charging them to be less self-centered and to be more others-focused. And in that process, he uses God himself as an example that's worthy of following, an example, and he, and he points to the, the ultimate example of selflessness is God's choice to become one of us. He ex it says he was in the form of God. So basically, God, before coming down to earth, we have to understand that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, existed before Jesus arrived on uh, this earth. He was uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, if you will. And so he was in the form of God, so he remained what he was, but he became something different. How was that possible? I think this clue, the clue here that's important is that phrase at the end or beginning of verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. What does that mean, emptied himself? He laid aside 
the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Think about some of those. His immortality, his omniscience, his omnipresence. Some of those things he chose to put on the side. To say, I'm going, I'm going to choose to empty myself of these different character, characteristics. Anybody that spent any amount of time raising kids realizes that kids love to wrestle and to get physical with their, their parents and try to, I, I remember when my kids were little, they loved to wrestle with dad so often and I was always just tossing them around. It was a ton of fun just throwing them around. But I remember my kids would realize pretty quickly, they're just like, well, we can't really compete with you. So they'd have me do different things. They'd be like, all right, this time only use one arm. And then the next time they're like, okay, well this time put, the, it's just your left arm. Then they'd realize I'd tackle them in the wrestling around and I'd use a, a leg or whatever. They're like, okay, well, this time only use one arm and one leg. And then it would, it would escalate. And eventually it was like, man, I'm trying to wrestle you guys with no arms and no legs. It was kind of a futile effort, kind of a, a funny process. And I was thinking about that as it relates to this. God say, all right, in order for me to be able to engage with you, there's some things that I have to put on the shelf to make it possible. And that's what he chose to do. He chose to empty himself. The, the term for that is called kenosis. It's the idea of deliberately putting limits on oneself, choosing complete dependence on the Father. That's why it says that he didn't, he didn't count that. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. There's no need to grasp equality with God because he lacked it or needed to cling to it, he instead chose to arrive as a vulnerable baby in the arms of a teenage girl. And I'll tell you, having two, two teenage girls, two teenage daughters, you realize, man, what a, a place of vulnerability God put himself in, choosing to come down, saying, I'm going to rid myself of all of these attributes and put and trust myself into the arms of teenagers. Pretty powerful description. So that's what happened is he emptied himself. He didn't just empty himself. We see also that he became a servant. Look in the, 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 the next verse here, verse seven. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here's the thing to understand kind of think through of like, if you're making an entry here on earth, you're like, well, I could come into a, a wealthy household with all the lavish options of someone and the excesses of a, a castle. Or you, I mean, you could choose all kinds of entry points into this world that wouldn't be so terrible. But what does God choose to do? What are we told here? He comes in the form of, of a servant. He comes to two peasant ki kids in order to raise them. He didn't come in opulence. Instead, he came in a humble estate, choosing to put on the form. And here's the, the demonstration of what being a servant looks like, being born in the likeness of men. What does it mean, the likeness of men? There's nothing about Jesus that set him apart or made him stand out from the crowd. 
he showed up to a peasant couple and just blended in. He lived with a a, a blue-collar worker life, if you will. It's interesting to think of what that looks like, that he was fully God, but then also fully human. And in that fully humanness, he experienced all the same exact things that we experience. There was nothing that made him able to relate with us. I read this list this uh, past week that I really enjoyed, a summary from Mark Driscoll of all the different experiences in his humanness that Jesus went through. I jotted these down. One, uh, just work through these with me briefly. First one, we already have alluded to, born of a woman. That's kind of a uh, important part that most one of most every one of us can, or I shouldn't say most, every one of us can relate with. He also had a, a normal body of flesh and bones. Can you imagine the limitations that that would have after leaving the throne room of heaven? He grow, grew up as a boy. He had a family. He obeyed his parents, we're told. He worshiped God at church and prayed. He worked as a uh, as I mentioned, as a blue-collar carpenter, some believe that it was less of a carpenter and more of like a mason working with stone because of the specific area in which they lived. He got hungry. He asked for information. He was stressed at times. He was astonished, we're told. He was, ha- he was happy. He was sad. He told jokes. He had compassion on people. He had male and female friends he loved. He gave encouraging compliments to people. He loved children. He celebrated holidays. He went to parties and he loved his mom. All of these things that we typically associate with a a normal human existence, Jesus went through all of those. It's interesting of the things that he went through. A lot of times when we're telling the story of Jesus, we kind of jump from birth, the Christmas celebration, all the way to the Easter account where he dies on a, on a cross and you're just like, well, what about the 33 years of life in between? All of the experiences that he would have had, all of the things that he would have gone through. He had the same process of, of learning and growing as we do still today. In Luke chapter two, verse 52, it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. I think sometimes we assume that Jesus showed up with it all figured out, all already uh, having complete knowledge and, and lecturing uh, uh, Joseph and Mary right from uh, the cradle. It's kind of like the, I don't know if you remember those commercials of the E-Trade baby that comes out talking uh, uh, complete sentences. You're just like, was that Jesus? I don't think so. And when we sing about it, we say, no crying did he, did he have. And you're just like, well, I'm pretty sure he had all of those experiences. Crying is a means to get mom's attention. Hey, mom, I'm over here. I need something. He experienced all of those things. But the difference was, is he did it perfectly. Hebrews 7.26 says he was holy, innocent, and unstained holy, innocent, and unstained. He successfully navigated every single phase of life perfectly. His childhood, puberty, he went through the teenage years, the young adult years, all of those things navigating perfectly 
without sin. Now you might hear that and you're like, how is that even possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. The same way it's possible for us as a follower of Jesus Christ to navigate life still today. We lean and he leaned into the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. He didn't try to do things independently. He tapped into the power source, the same one that we have today. He lived as we are intended by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I think so often we miss out on what is actually at our disposal and the powerful resource that we have as a, as a counselor, as a comforter, as, a, a, as a, a being that can change our circumstances. We have so much at our disposal with the Holy Spirit. It's neat talking to my sister uh, this week, and she had an ex- Holy Spirit cool experience this past week. You might be uh, familiar with her, my sister Kathleen. She actually oversees our, our prayer ministry here at the uh, church, which is uh, fitting when you're about to hear this story uh, from the uh, past uh, few days. So she has a job. She's a chaplain and visits people often that are uh, terminally ill or aging and uh, tries to be a source of comfort, encouragement, and takes uh, plenty of opportunities to share about the love of Jesus Christ. And in one of her conversations this last week, she was visiting a Chinese family uh, where the, the mom's health is failing. The husband is there, doesn't speak very much English, but the son who did speak English was there visiting from China. The reason the son was visiting uh, in uh, the meeting when she was with them, the reason that he was uh, visiting was their brother. So the, the second son recently had fallen, hit his head, and was in a coma, and things weren't looking good for this son. So they're all pretty anxious about it. And the, the parents were believers from what Kathleen was explaining to me, but the son had been resistant to the whole idea of God moving and working and was the, the one kind of, if you'd call, prodigal son. Well, while they're getting together, as they're just wrapping up the time together, my sister had offered, well, before I go, do you think uh, that it would be appropriate? Would you be open to me just praying for your brother who's in this coma? And so the son, uh, getting the nod from the, the father, was like, all right, let's, let's go ahead and pray for him. And so she prayed for each member of the family. It took time praying for him and, and just cried out and called for God's rescue of this poor son. She doesn't know exactly how long he'd been in a coma, but long enough for family members from China to start visiting. And so she's calling out and praying for the son, finishes the prayer, and they're kind of Uh, escorting her out and thanking her for coming. They're saying their goodbyes. And in the middle of their goodbyes, they get a FaceTime call from the hospital from a relative that's there with the son that had just come out of the coma. When they're thinking through, well, when did this happen? It had just happened, most likely at the point that my sister Kathleen was praying for his rescue. Talk about a reminder for the son of woe There's something bigger going on here than just us. Maybe this God that my parents follow is real. Think about that when I kind of processing through this so often, I wonder with the choice of Jesus's limitations where he chose to connote the kenosis idea that he chose to live by the same power in the same spirit 
in which we have the option to live today. Makes me think, man, I wonder how much is left unused on the shelf because we don't lean in further. He chose to. I like this uh, quote by Gerald Hawthorne explains it well. He says, Jesus is the supreme example of what is possible in a human life because of his total dependence on the Spirit of God. He has, he has all the exact same resources that we have today. He did the will of the Father perfectly. And the Holy Spirit was the voice of the Father in his life. And the Holy Spirit is still the voice of the Father in our life today. Like this quote my sister reminded me of after this conversation of hearing this story. She said, uh, man, if we knew what power was at our disposal, this quote goes like this, says that we would attempt great things for God and ex- we'd ex- attempt great things for God and expect great things of God because who, of who we're dealing with. So this is Jesus Christ coming down, being amongst us, choosing to become a servant as we're told there. Then it moves on in the progression of his life in this account. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pause there. Obviously, a big point to uh, identify there is this demonstration of following and being obedient to the Father's promptings and leadings moved him. This obedience moved him to another level of sacrifice. So he became a servant. We already talked about that. But this servant was called to do something unbelievably drastic. And you hear if you're in church often what that was. Chose to humble himself, to even allow himself to die on a cruel Roman cross. I can't imagine the, the God of the universe, the one that spoke things into existence, allowing himself at any moment, he could have stopped it, but chose to march to that cross instead of us, paying the penalty that we owed. Instead, he absorbed that himself for us to allow that to sink in. What does that even look like? And God the Father watching it all play out, man, it's mind-boggling. Remember some years back reading a story that I think captures this picture so well, this idea of sacrifice. And you may have heard it before. I'm not positive, but I wanted to just take three minutes to, to just revisit this account of a father by the, by the name of John Griffith. I'll start with this just three-minute account. It says, John Griffith lived in the western part of the United States during the Great Depression. Married in 1929, the Griffiths watched their farming dreams blow into dust. Finally, they gathered their little son with their meager belongings and moved east. There, John landed a job at the Mississippi River tending a drawbridge. One summer day in 1937, he took his son to spend the day with him at work. Wide-eyed and full of questions, Greg watched his father as he raised the bridge to let the ships pass, then lowered it for the great trains to roar across the river. About noon, John put up the bridge and sat with Greg on an observation platform to eat their lunches. 
They enjoyed the activity on the waterfront. John dreamed about traveling, so he told Greg stories about the ships and where they were headed. He was so caught up in the stories that he lost consciousness of time. Suddenly, he was awakened by the shrill whistle of a locomotive. He glanced at his watch, noting that it was nearly time for the Memphis Express. John made his way to the great gear, gear room, sat on the stool, and took the lever in his hand. He looked up the river and back down to see if any ships were coming. Then he glanced below. Wait, no, no, this can't be. Terror gripped him as his heart leaped into his throat and blood froze in his veins. Evidently, Greg, his son, tried to follow his dad, slipped off the catwalk, and fell into the massive gears below. His leg was caught, and as sure as the sun rises in the morning, if the bridge was lowered, six tons of revolving metal would grind him to death. Mind spinning, John frantically sought for answers. He thought, I'll run back, tie a rope, let myself down. But no, there was not a third of the needed time. John moaned. He was trembling and perspiring as his eyes brimmed with tears. The shrill cry of the train whistle was alarmingly close. More than anything, he wanted to spare his son. But if he did, many would die. There was no other way to spare their lives. Stricken and overwhelmed with grief, John bowed his quivering head, covered his eyes, and released the lever. The gear room shook as the wheels turned and the great bridge settled down into place. In moments, it was over and the Memphis Express came roaring past. John lifted his head and looked in the train. There's a man reading the morning news. The conductor was looking at his watch. A woman in the dining car was feeding her little girl with a long spoon. No one noticed the heartbroken Griffith. No one was aware of the grieving father or the newly torn body of his dear son. Choking with passion, John called out, What's the matter with you people? I just gave my son for you. Don't you even care? Nobody heard. Nobody looked. Nobody knew. And no one responded as the train disappeared across the river. Man, that story gets me every time. Just thinking about that, as you think about this life and this whole idea of Christmas and what we're celebrating, that God chose to come down and be among us, live a perfect life as an example for us, but then marching towards a cruel death as a sacrifice for us. But we're just busy doing our own thing, being caught up with all of the cares and this life has to offer, not realizing that apart from his rescue, we're headed to eternal destruction. And so you get a sense of John, what he was going through. Whoa, why doesn't anybody notice what actually is going on here? What was at stake? What was offered on our behalf? Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Continues in verse 9, says, therefore, because that means because of this, because of the sacrifice that was made, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, the story doesn't end with him in a tomb. You see that this rescue mission actually came to fruition when he rose again on the third day, providing rescue for everyone who places their faith and trust in him. Those who call out and acknowledge him as Lord. Find it interesting there how it points to this idea that at some point, everyone will confess that this once baby is now Lord over all. In fact, I was reading this last week that 747 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord. Think about that just for a moment. It's not something that, we're at, that some people are going to sneak by. Be like, well, I chose that I'm not calling him Lord. We're told here that at some point, every knee is going to finally bend. Every person. So really the question isn't whether or not we're going to acknowledge him as Lord. It's whether we choose to do it willingly or not. And in this lifetime, I want to be the person that recognizes who we're dealing with. I want to be the person that willingly bends a knee, acknowledging him as Lord. When I think about a message I heard some years back with John Irwin, actually, behind the, uh, the sta- on the stage here, he's talking about that, and he gave the opportunity for our church to actually respond to those couple verses and actually bend a knee. It's kind of stuck in my head. It's kind of a cool response, and maybe I don't know what you're doing. If you're driving, you might be listening to this. Maybe an appropriate response is getting a head start on what we're told is going to happen eventually. As I close in prayer today, to actually choose to do that, to bend a knee, a physical response to a to a intellectual reality, if we choose to to actually respond to who Jesus is, God in an earth suit came to live amongst us, came on a rescue mission for us, and now is as elevated as Lord over all appropriately. Man, it's a lot easier to do it willingly in this lifetime. Then on the other side, let me pray as we wrap up. And if you feel comfortable bending a knee, feel the freedom to do that. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge this reality today as we approach Christmas, that this wasn't a a random fluke holiday and something uh, of uh, folklore. This is literally the account of you choosing to come down and be among us. This is your arrival story. And I pray that that would really take root in our listeners' ears, that that would really sink in the choice that you came down on a rescue mission and that the Father demonstrated the most unbelievable picture of pursuit and love in that act, giving up his only begotten Son for our sins, for our sake. God, I thank you that you've also, for the believer that's listening, that you've left us with the same resource that you leaned into here on earth, calling out to the Holy Spirit for direction, for wisdom. And I pray for both the person that's maybe still seeking and the person that's found you, that we'd actually take appropriate steps this Christmas. For the seeker, God, that he would call out to you for rescue, acknowledging his sins, admitting that he's blown it, fallen short of your perfect standard, and then acknowledging what you've done on the cross, clinging to that, calling to you for rescue. And for the rest of us, God, that we'd be much more intentional about walking in the Spirit 
and not in the flesh this Christmas. We can't do any of this on our own. Thank you again for this time and your word and the gift of being able to utilize this medium of uh, online uh, to be able to communicate it. Uh, We pray, God, that you'd go before us in the week ahead. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.